the evidence trail of chemical weapons used in Syria today, Friday, June 14th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Some of America's allies said months ago that they had evidence of chemical weapons use in Syria. It took the U.S. a bit longer to reach the same conclusion. This expert says the White House was right to be cautious. Doing the detailed analysis on the samples that have made their way out of Syria actually takes a bit of time. Also on the program, Iranians go to the polls to elect a new president. Brazilians take to the streets to protest rising bus fares. And this man, well, he's going to use the Eiffel Tower as his own personal drum kit. It kind of sounds like a sizzle cymbal, which is a, a cymbal that has rivets in it. When you hit it, the rivets continue to vibrate, so this like little kind of sound. Swing it, daddy PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Iran and Syria, two stories we're following very closely today, and they're much related. The war in Syria could be about to shift now that President Obama has reportedly decided to supply the rebels with military aid. In a few minutes, we'll hear more about the evidence that Syria's regime has used chemical weapons. But first, to Iran, whose government supports the Assad regime in Syria and whose leaders have long defied the United States. Well, Iranians voted today in a presidential election. The vote is widely seen as rigged in favor of the government's preferred candidates. All six candidates today in the election are conservatives approved by Iran's religious authorities. Earlier, the supreme leader himself, Ayatollah Khamenei, was at the polls, and he had this very firm response to Western skepticism. Khamenei said, to hell with you if you don't believe in our election. Well, Tehran-born journalist Nazila Fati reported for the New York Times from Iran until she was forced out of the country in 2009. She's now at Harvard's Belfer Center and is going to unpack today's elections for us. Now, the scene setter on these elections you wrote for foreign policy, Nazila, was titled Iran's Big Yawn. So I hate to wake you from what you think is a fairly predictable election. Have you been in touch with people in Iran today? What have they told you? I spoke to a couple of people on the ground, and surprisingly, a lot of people did go to the polls. I, I heard that there were long lines outside the polling stations. A lot of people uh, had finally decided to go and vote for the reformist candidate, uh, Hassan Rouhani, uh, not because they did believe that he will definitely get elected, but it's a way for them to, to tell the establishment what their preference is. And they didn't want to embrace sort of pacifism and sit back and let the regime bring about any candidates that it preferred. Right. Now, Hassan Rouhani, he's uh, Iran's former nuclear negotiator, probably the more moderate of the candidates. And earlier today, he seemed to have a fairly large lead. Do you think there is a stronger desire on the part of Iranians to just dial back the conservatism uh, this time around? Oh, absolutely. Hassan Rouhani is not a reformist candidate by any means. He actually had a reputation in 99 to be behind the student uprising crackdown. 
And he's a very much a man who has been behind a lot of intelligence decisions since the beginning of the revolution. But everything is relative in the Islamic Republic. Uh, now that the other candidates are very close to the supreme leader, they are very hardline, especially two of the candidates. One of them was the head of the police who became the mayor of Tehran, and the other one was the nuclear negotiator, the current nuclear negotiator. Hassan Rouhani, compared to the other one, seems more moderate. And two former presidents who are known to be reformist candidates uh, through their support behind Rouhani. And people are just voting to pick uh, one of the candidates who's relatively more moderate compared to the Mm. other ones. So does a large turnout indicate uh, that one candidate in particular could benefit? Well, historically, if there is a large turnout, it means that people are voting for the reformist candidate uh, because the majority of people live in the cities. And if they do come to the polls, uh, they tend to pick the more moderate candidate. Uh, It looks like there is a big turnout. We still don't have much information about what's going on in other cities. I heard that people even in rural areas were texting one another and calling on people to vote for Rouhani. Mm. Uh, But there are six candidates running, and it is a possibility that there would be a second round. Right. Well, Nazila Fatih at Harvard's Belfer Center, thank you very much. Thank you. Iran's next president will surely spend a lot of his time responding to events in neighboring Syria. Iran's been supporting the regime of President Bashar al-Assad in his fight against opposition rebels in Syria. And recently, the Assad regime appears to have regained the upper hand in that war. But the momentum could be about to shift again now that President Obama has reportedly decided to send weapons to the rebels. That news followed the declaration from the White House yesterday that U.S. intelligence now believes with a high degree of confidence that the Syrian regime has used chemical weapons against the rebels. There are still some questions, though, about the evidence behind that statement. Hamish de Breton Gordon is a former commanding officer at the UK's Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiological, and Nuclear Regiment. He's now CEO of Secure Bio, consultants in bio and chemical weapons. So you know the evidence pretty well. Uh, you worked with the BBC to assess the evidence for chemical weapons deployment in Syria. Uh, weigh out the evidence now. What did you see in your own assessment earlier this year that scans or doesn't scan with the news from the White House yesterday? Well, I think it's all interrelated. And I think when you put all the evidence together that we've seen over the last six months and what we saw with the BBC in May, it's quite compelling. And I think some of the evidence we saw in Sarakeb and also in Sheikh al-Masud in Aleppo is very similar and probably the same evidence which the US administration have come out unequivocally saying that they believe sarin or chemical weapons have been used, I think, up to eight times against uh, opposition forces in Syria. Right. So can you just explain what uh, has changed since you uh, helped with your assessment with the BBC? I mean, what new evidence do you think flipped the switch? Well, first of all, these samples have not been collected with the full forensic chain in mind. So one isolated sample would not be good. But now that we've seen uh, up to eight, The detailed chemistry required in laboratories in the US and UK and France actually takes a bit of time. These are very tiny trace elements of sarin. And talk about the samples. What kind of samples are are you referring to? Well, certainly the ones I've seen have been soil samples and masonry collected from the likes of Aleppo and and Sarakeb and Damascus. I think there have also been some clothing samples And it's also been widely reported that blood and hair samples have been taken off 
refugees and people that uh, have escaped from those areas and presumably UK and US government sources have been able to pin those people to the place and events in that sort of time. I mean, Israeli intelligence as well as France and other countries sounded certain beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, weeks ago that Assad had used chemical weapons. Why has it been so difficult to establish certainty in this case? Is it the evidence or the politics? I'm sure it's a bit of both. And of course, you know, people like myself who fought in the last Gulf War on some very spurious evidence of WMD usage understand the reticence of President Obama and coming forward to unequivocally say that chemical weapons have been used. So it's it's both the politics and the evidence itself. I mean, given that this news has now pushed the U.S. into openly arming the rebels, why do you think Assad used these weapons in the first place? He must have known that this would have been one of the consequences. In my discussions when I was with the BBC um, in the region with uh, some of the opposition, it's very clear that the threat of chemical weapon usage was hampering their campaign against the regime because they have no protective equipment or, or any way of monitoring chemical weapon usage. So in effect, the regime were conducting a ruse of war. I think the regime probably believed by a very limited use that, that it would not cross that line. I think they also knew it was going to be hugely challenging for uh, the international community to get forensic samples to lead to yesterday's announcement chemical weapons expert Hamish de Gordon Breton. Syria's war has been filtering into Lebanon. In the past month, more than 30 people have been killed in the northern Lebanese city of Tripoli. And the violence echoes what's happening in Syria. Fighters who back Syria's President Assad are battling anti-Assad partisans. And as Ben Gilbert reports, the fight is neighborhood against neighborhood. Mita Mohammed and her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter live in the wrong apartment in Tripoli. It has a direct line of sight onto a hill nearby, so it's a perfect firing position when fighting breaks out in the city, like last Monday. Gunmen uh, forced them to leave their house because they told them, you have to leave now, we want to have a fight, we want to have a clash. Mita says she's forced to move to her mother-in-law's home every time the fighting starts up, which is often. Six people died in Monday's violence. This should end, Mita says. They should live in peace together. They're not going to get rid of the other side. No one is going to win. These are local clashes that pit two warring neighborhoods against each other. They have one thing in common, a lot of unemployed young men. But they're divided over everything else ethnic and religious identity, and especially their stance on the conflict next door in Syria. On one side is the Sunni Muslim neighborhood of Bab al-Tabene. People here support the Syrian opposition, and they oppose Lebanon's Hezbollah, which is allied with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Above them, on a hill a few hundred meters away, is the Jebel Mosin neighborhood. The people here support Syrian President Assad and Hezbollah, and, like Assad, are from the minority Alawite religious sect. Ali Farah is spokesman for the Alawite political party in Lebanon. He tells me Sunni extremists started Monday's fight. The Alawite people of Jebel Mosin are in danger from the people around them. Human Rights Watch wrote about this, he says. The Alawites and the Sunnis get along well in Tripoli. It's the extremist Sunnis who don't get along with the Alawites. Farah spoke by phone from Jebel Mosin because the sniper fire made it too dangerous to go interview him up on the hill. The Sunni fighters down below told us the same thing when we said we wanted to visit their front lines. 
So, a 41-year-old Sunni fighter from Bab al-Tabene met us at a mosque on the edge of his neighborhood. He asked us to call him Abu Bara. He arrived on a motorbike with one of his young street fighters. Both carried Kalashnikov rifles in broad daylight. When he's not fighting, Abu Bara is a baker. But he says he's a Salafi Muslim, an ultra-conservative Sunni, all the time. He says Lebanon Sunnis have been steamrolled by Syria and Hezbollah. That's why he's taken up arms, to defend against the Alawites in Jebel Mosin. But the defense is chaotic. Abu Bara says that ever since the Sunni leader in Lebanon, former Prime Minister Saad Hariri, went into self-imposed exile two years ago, the Sunni community has been in disarray. The problem with the Sunnis in Lebanon is that there's no leader to unite all of them, to take command, to direct them, he says. Everyone is acting on his own will. This lack of leadership has created a vacuum in Lebanon's Sunni community, and analysts say Salafist extremists are filling it. And some of them encourage young Lebanese and Syrians in Lebanon to go fight in Syria. In Tripoli, the Lebanese army patrols and armored personnel carriers, like this one, to try to keep the peace. They've attempted to stop the clashes, but the fighting has grown more intense in the past month. Lebanese security forces say that in May, more than 1,000 rocket-propelled grenades and mortars were fired during one 24-hour period. Even areas of the city that aren't usually affected by the fighting, like downtown Tripoli, have felt the impact. Last Sunday night, a small bomb destroyed a coffee shop run by an Alawite man. His neighbor, a Sunni named Ahmed Shawrani, owns a clothing shop next door that was also damaged. We have very good relations with the coffee shop owner, Sharani says. He's a very good person. He doesn't bother anyone. Many in this city are sick of the fighting and the tension comes along with it. Khaled Merhab is a local lawyer. The baddest thing about this all is the total absence of the state. The army isn't interfering. Uh, the police, they, they never interfere. We see people running with guns and shooting on TV and proudly talking about their guns. And if somebody holds a weapon on TV and says, I'm going to kill the Sunnis or the Alawites, nobody moves. Down the block, at an Alawite-owned cafe on Tripoli's main street, an employee named Hanan Taraf says she isn't afraid. But the cafe is closing earlier than usual because young men ride by on motorcycles in a way that spooks her. We usually stay open until 1 a.m., Taraf says, but tonight we'll close at 9 or 9.30 because of the guys on the motorcycles. For The World, I'm Ben Gilbert, Tripoli, Lebanon. Just ahead on The World, how to turn two-buck chuck into three-buck chuck on Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. The Eiffel Tower, it's meant a lot of things to lots of people over the years. Some initially saw it as an eyesore before it became the symbol of Paris. But to Joseph Bertolozzi, the iron structure is something else, a percussion instrument. Christopher Wirth explains. Are we ready? Ready. At 900 feet in the air, American composer Joseph Bertolozzi and his recording crew stand at the top of the Eiffel Tower overlooking Paris. Okay, stand by. C5, take seven. 
Bertolozzi raises a mallet like he's about to strike a giant gong and hits the barrier that keeps tourists from going over the side. There's like a metal panel, right? And then above that, there's a metal grate. It kind of sounds like a sizzle cymbal, which is a, a cymbal that has rivets in it. When you hit it, the rivets continue to vibrate, so there's like a little zzzz kind of sound, if I hit it the right way. Bertolozzi has spent two weeks banging on the tower's walls, girders, and handrails, and he attracts a lot of attention. You have all these tourists and stuff, people walking up to you and saying, what are you doing, <laughs> you know, while you're trying to get this really quiet sound. And it's like, okay, cut. With the recordings, Bertolozzi plans to create a virtual instrument that he can use to begin writing music for the tower. You know, I'm here harvesting these sounds, F-sharp, B-flat. These are very simple building blocks. And then, knowing what the virtual instrument sounds like, I can say, okay, we have these low notes, we have these high notes, and then I use those to write the music. It's a little concerned that I'd come here and find, you know, everything would be an F-sharp, you know. (laughs) 500 F-sharps, what do you do with that, you know? So he's brought an assortment of different tools to create a variety of sounds. I mean, I can show you right here. You've got a bag of hammers, sticks, mallets. Yeah. You know, here's a wooden mallet. Uh, here's one that has a sleeve of latex on it. I have like, these regular drumsticks, which you'll hear have a more of a clicking sound. So you pick the right tool for the sound you're looking for. Like when you want those really big sounds. Bertolozzi lifts a wooden log he's brought all the way from New York. So I built this. It's just a log and this strap. I have uh, lamb's wool on one side for a softer hit, and I have uh, just the regular exposed wood on the other side um, for a harder hit. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, no matter what you use, banging on a big metal tourist attraction will just give you a lot of dull clinks and clanks. But Bertolozzi's recording engineer, Paul Kozel, uses what are known as contact microphones that attach directly to the tower to pick up every vibration when it's hit. Believe it or not, we're getting things that sound like timpanis, things that sound like marimbas, but we're just playing on metal. One of the things that we wanted to capture is a wide variety of sounds so that when this piece comes out, it's not a bunch of clinks and clanks. In fact, once Bertolozzi starts composing, the Eiffel Tower could sound like this. In 2009, he turned the Franklin D. Roosevelt Mid-Hudson Bridge in New York into a musical instrument. This tune, called Bridge Music, is made up of sounds played from different parts of the Mid-Hudson. The bridge has those vertical suspender cables, which were like notes of a bass guitar. The piece is part of a sound art installation with two listening stations on either side of the structure. And you can hear the music of the bridge on the bridge. But for the Eiffel Tower, Bertolozzi hopes to perform his composition live, with percussionists scattered all over the tower playing its various pieces. Some musicians will be on the first floor, some will be on the second floor, you know, 800 feet away from the nearest person to them. It's all mixed together and comes out speakers that are down on the ground level. And we would have videographers so that you could look at the tower and hear the music happening, or you could look at the screen and see musicians up close. It's a really, really big project. So big, the authorities in Paris may need some convincing. Right now, the performance is just Bertolozzi's dream. He says it took four years just to get permission to come here and collect sounds on the Eiffel Tower. So does Bertolozzi see himself as the composer who plays huge public structures? 
no, it's not my life's ambition to go and play different monuments. I don't need to do this again. But if somebody would like me to play their building or their arch or their tower or bridge, whatever they want, I'm the man to do it. As long as the money's there, Bertolozzi estimates a live performance on the Eiffel Tower will cost well over $3 million to produce. He's looking for funding and expects to complete the composition in about a year's time. For The World, I'm Christopher Wirth, Paris. Ah, Paris. Hearing that report got me in the mood to take a trip, see a new place, or perhaps see a new side of an old place. How about New York City for the undead? Yep, as part of our armchair travel series, I recently asked writer Cory Doctorow to recommend a book that really takes the reader to a different place. He chose one by writer Mer Lafferty. It's a really sweet romp, kind of supernatural comedy set in New York about a someone who, uh, in the publishing industry, who is down on her luck, as many people in the publishing industry are, who finds herself working for someone who publishes travel guides to New York for the undead and who discovers an entirely different side of New York kind of lurking under the surface. So it's kind of like travel guides for zombies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> travel guide for zombies and werewolves and, and ghosts and so on. And cool. so it's, it's not the haunted guide to New York, it's the guide for haunts to New York. And that was writer Corey Doctorow recommending Mer Lafferty's new book, The Shambling Guide to New York City. And some of you have been sending us your armchair travel favorites. One visitor at theworld.org recommended two books about the costs of war. The first is Joshua E.S. Phillips, None of Us Were Like This Before, American Soldiers and Torture. And the second is Tony Horowitz's Baghdad Without a Map, a must-read, both of them, according to the comment. Via Twitter, Michael Kirkpatrick recommends Uganda, a school for my village by Jackson Kaguri. It's about one man's effort to open a school for AIDS orphans in Uganda. And we're asking more of you to join the conversation. If you have a book recommendation that will take the reader somewhere, anywhere, just tweet it using the hashtag armchair travel. Now, I'm guessing most of you have shopped at Trader Joe's at least once. So we're looking for a city in Canada where you'll find a store that resells or pirates Trader Joe's products from the U.S. It's a big city in the Pacific Northwest that was once called Gastown. Seattle is its neighbor to the south. And it's home to Pirate Joe's, a store with an attitude. Hi, you've reached Pirate Joe's. Call back in a couple of minutes and bug us and we'll pick up and we'll tell you what we have. Uh, mostly costumes, pirate stuff, no groceries at all, really. We don't smuggle stuff from the United States. We don't bring it in. We don't even import it. We don't even bother with it. We don't go to the United States at all to get groceries and bring them in. No, we don't. Call us. Call us back. Well, he may deny it, but Pirate Joe's cross-border shopping habits have earned him a lawsuit. We'll tell you more about that when we name Pirate Joe's home city in Canada a bit later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, grocery chain Trader Joe's is suing a pirate from north of the border. Even the pirate himself admits that reselling dried mango and oat brown isn't that great of an idea. It gets an F as a business. I mean, you know, if you write a list of 900 things to get and go shopping with a shopping cart, you know, you're not going to get you're not going to get very far. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. 
Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It was almost two months ago that this city and the nation were shocked by the Boston Marathon bombings. The bombings focused world attention on the two suspects, the Sarnaev brothers, and on Chechnya, the majority Muslim republic in southern Russia, where the Sarnaev family has its roots. Chechnya is also the setting for Anthony Mara's debut novel, A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. The book unfolds over five days in 2004, a time of war in Chechnya, with flashbacks of the earlier conflict there in 1994. Oddly enough, Mara visited Chechnya only after writing about it. He says the relative calm he found there in 2012 masks a turbulent past. The reality today is is much different than it was 10 years ago, the the time when when the novel is set. In 2003, the United Nations declared Grozny the most devastated city on Earth. But if you go there today, it's nearly entirely rebuilt. There are skyscrapers. There's a brand new mosque, the largest in, in Europe. And you get the sense that this entirely new city has been transplanted on the ruins of its predecessor. So A Constellation of Vital Phenomena, your novel, involves courageous Chechens and Russians, a doctor, Ahmed, who watches authorities abduct his neighbor, the father of a very charming little girl named Hava. There's this intensely driven Russian surgeon, Sonia. Then there's an informer who does some pretty despicable things, but mostly seems haunted by his father's disappointment in him. No one seems really overtly political or religious. No one spouts a a party line. Is, Is there a reason you're not depicting Chechens who are for lack of a better word, radicalized. Yeah. The Chechens that we read about in in the newspaper, the Chechens that pop up on CNN every couple of years, are these more religious, more radicalized Chechens. And I was much more interested in telling the story of of just average people who were sort of caught in the middle of these two groups of, of armed thugs, basically, and were trying to recover what has been lost over the course of these wars. And when you say armed thugs, you're talking about the radicalized Chechens as well as the the Russian army that came in. Yes. It's a toss-up which of the two have been more detrimental to the country. I mean, Chechnya, from everything I hear, is such a tough place to penetrate. You're an American who grew up in Washington, D.C., pretty comfortable life. Why Chechnya? In college, I studied in St. Petersburg, Russia, and I arrived there shortly after the Russian journalist Anna Politkovskaya was assassinated for her uh, presumably for her reportings from Chechnya. And I lived a, a couple blocks away from a metro station where Russian veterans of the Chechen wars would congregate to share stories and uh, and drink and ask commuters for spare change. And Chechnya was very much in the air in St. Petersburg there at the time. I started reading histories and and various journalistic accounts of Chechnya and quickly became just fascinated with its culture, with its traditions, its larger-than-life characters that have inspired writers like Tolstoy and Pushkin and Lermontov. I've read that you actually had not been to Chechnya when you wrote this. Yeah, I began writing it when Chechnya was still quite a a dicey place to, to visit as a foreigner. And I only visited around this time last year. After I was just about finished with the book, I had one final draft to go through. And as far as Chechnya itself, I mean, once you got drawn in, it seems like uh, the place didn't release you. What was it about Chechnya that just pushed you to say, I'm going to write this novel about Chechnya? 
this period of time in which the the novel is set is a period where character is distilled through the conditions on the ground at the time. One's essence is sort of boiled to its most distilled state. There are heroes there and there are villains, but it's a very morally complicated place to set a story and and to dramatize those those choices. One of the characters is a man named Kassan, and he has spent his entire career writing this epic 3,000-page history of Chechnya. And every time he gets close to finishing, there is a shift in the political winds that require him to go back to the beginning and, and rewrite the novel. And his son, whom you mentioned, is this informer. And Kassan, this historian, is this sort of repository of Chechen history and culture and has to decide what to do with this son who's sort of betraying all that. And while some of his choices and the choices of all of these characters are ones that readers hopefully will never have to make for themselves, I think the ethical conflicts are ones that we can all probably relate to. You know, despite Chechnya's grim side, or maybe because of it, there's a great gallows humor in your novel. One of the characters thinks that Ronald McDonald is the American president, and that whole passage kind of reads like Abbott and Costello's uh, Who's on First bit. Was it hard to find comedy in this dark place? It was surprisingly easy. Comedy is one of the natural responses to horror. We laugh at what would otherwise make us cry. And when I visited Chechnya, I was constantly surprised by the humor and the jokes that people were cracking. Usually they were at my expense. Do you think novels like this have a role in somehow helping to keep violence at bay by pointing out its futility? Maybe no one book can ever really change the world. But by reading literature, by seeing how people you would never meet on a daily basis live their lives, by seeing their hopes, by seeing the extent of their humanity. It breaks through generalizations, through stereotypes. And once once those things are broken, I think it, it becomes a lot harder to, to demonize. It becomes harder to make these sort of blanket generalizations that, that can lead to violence. Anthony Mara's debut novel is called A Constellation of Vital Phenomena. It will challenge your ideas about Chechnya. This book had a lot of folks, Anthony, in our newsroom staying up late. So thank you very much for speaking with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. Our GeoQuiz today sent you searching for Pirate Joe's. It's a Canadian grocery store. Think Trader Joe's with a bit of piracy. Now, there are no Trader Joe's anywhere in Canada, and that's why Pirate Joe's stepped in. The store resells Trader Joe's products, but usually at a higher price. Got to cover your overhead, right? Well, until recently, that has not been a problem, but now Trader Joe's is crying foul. We're going to find out why by talking to Pirate Joe himself. That would be Mike Hallett. So, Mike, first of all, your store is located where? Uh, it's in an old, venerable neighborhood of Vancouver called Kitsilano. Uh, it's on 4th Avenue, and they call it Front Row. So Vancouver, the beautiful city of Vancouver, is the answer to our GeoQuiz today. And I understand uh, you're just back from a cross-border shopping trip. Where did you do your shopping? Well, I'd like not to say. Uh, it's a bit of a cat-and-mouse game at the moment. I uh, I basically shop in the Pacific Northwest, where I get some love uh, from Trader Joe's uh, in the, at the store level. Uh, from a corporate point of view, they're not very happy with what I'm doing. However, uh, the stores like the business. What, the stores like the business because you go in, you get a lot of stuff. What, how much do you usually spend per per trip? I'll spend five thousand uh, bucks, but I try to not raid the stores because I just want to grab uh, a few things uh, like everybody else does, and then uh, there's enough stores to go around that I can accumulate enough product to satisfy my customers in Vancouver. 
So now Trader Joe's is suing you. Uh, they say you're damaging its brand. What do you say to that? Show me the harm. Uh, I have very clear right to resell anything I legally own. I bought it fair and square. I'm reselling it. Trader Joe's is essentially using a, a red herring, uh, some sort of vague trademark infringement brand harm argument uh, in order to stop me. I've reached out to them many times, asked for guidance, tell me under what conditions uh, they will feel comfortable me reselling their product, and they just just say, stop. It's not acceptable. And I find that unacceptable. I understand you're so miffed by this that you've actually modified your store sign uh, after the suit was filed. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, it was just a bit of a stunt. And uh, the day we were uh, uh, sued, I said, hey, how about this? And took the P down and it kind of stuck. Um, so the P stays down until it's resolved. Um, we're going to take it to the end. I mean, I think it's important to find out what... Uh, um, you know, what our rights are as citizens to, uh, you know, there's some corporate overreach here. And I think, you know, I think Trader Joe's should fire their lawyer. I mean, I, I think Trader Joe's is an amazing company. They make amazing products. Uh, I just don't think it's fair that the Canadians have to drive over the, a border to get them. Uh, and so, you know, the natural outlet in a free market is for somebody like me to set up a shop and resell it. And if I have to mark it up to cover my costs and make a profit, well, then so be it. And people have every right to either shop at my store or not. So what used to be Pirate Joe's is, until further notice, Irate Joe's. That's pretty clever. How big is your shop? Small. <laughs> it's about uh, 400 square feet. We have, oh, that is we funny. Have, yeah. Yeah, we have about 900 different products tucked in there. So you, uh, we even have stuff underneath the cash register in an old cabinet. So if you know where to look, you can find special stuff. What does your typical shopping list actually look like when you go down on one of these trips? Well, you know, we've tried everything. Um, if, you know, if you write a list of 900 things to get and go shop in a shop with a shopping cart, you know, you're not going to get, <laughs> you're not going to get very far. So we've discovered a, a modality, so to speak, uh, where basically uh, Barry, who's my uh, rock Irish kid who uh, runs the store for me, uh, he, uh, calls me up and I've got my little Bluetooth thing and I look like a regular shopper and uh, I'm not wearing a dress at this point, <laughs> but uh, believe me, I, it may come to that. Uh, and he uh, calls in and, uh, and we go to calm. So uh, when you come into the shop, you know, if we haven't got any of the unsweetened, unsulfured mango, uh, stay tuned. You know, we'll be <laughs> we're just a few days away from some more. But it is very, very uh, it's a silly it gets an F as a business. I mean, really doesn't make any sense, but some things worth doing, you know, aren't necessarily fit in a box, I guess. Um, and it's been a great journey, great run. If I'm ever in doubt, I work the floor and uh, people come in and shake my hand and, and just thank me for, uh, for doing what we're doing. We're having a lot of fun. All right. Give us a little love here. If, the, if uh, Trader Joe's has its way and makes you walk the gangplank, uh, uh, let's hear your best pirate reaction to that. Arbitrage. <laughs> Perfect. Mike Hallett runs Pirate Joe's, a Canadian reseller of Trader Joe's products in Vancouver. It's the answer to the GeoQuiz, Vancouver, the city that is. Mike, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks, Marco. By the way, we reached out to Trader Joe's corporate headquarters for a comment, and we did not hear back in time for our broadcast. Coming up in a few minutes, the latest on the protests in Turkey. But first, let me tell you about some serious protests in Brazil this week. Thousands in the streets of Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, and other Brazilian cities, and some of those protests have turned violent. 
Things got ugly in Sao Paulo last night. 5,000 demonstrators blocked traffic and vandalized buildings in the city. Police used tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse them. So what is all this commotion about? Well, like Turkey, the Brazil protest began over a simple urban concern, a hike in bus fare, the equivalent of just 10 U.S. cents. Vincent Bevins is a reporter with the L.A. Times in Sao Paulo. So you went out last night, Vincent, uh, you and a few other journalists, and you got caught in the crossfire. Tell us what happened. I ended up getting caught in the middle of some tear gas, which I had not planned on. Um, a lot of other journalists fared a lot worse. Seven to eight injured quite badly. One may lose sight in one of his eyes. Uh, a few shot quite right in the face with um, rubber bullets. Things got out of hand much quicker than we expected. So all over a 10-cent hike in bus fare. I mean, the original protesters said they'd shut down the city if the fares didn't change. Uh, it seems kind of drastic, but the crowd's gotten so big. What, why is it growing so much? And would you say their concerns actually justify their actions? Well, um, 10 cents isn't that much, but I think it's become clear that this has more to do with a general discontent with the level of public services, especially transportation services and including the police in Sao Paulo. Um, A majority of people do now support the protests, even though it did start off with a sort of a fringe group that had been demanding free transportation for everyone throughout the city, which is a bit unrealistic. But in in the last few days, we've seen this become about um, a city that's very difficult to live in, and it's very expensive to get around, and it's very hard, especially for the poor, to get back and forth from work. the rise was up to just three reais and 20 cents, which is only about $1.50. But if you make minimum wage, that could be up to 25% of your monthly salary, just taking two buses a day. So the bottom line here for at least this protest, I mean, a, a small fare hike upsetting so many people does seem to say something about poverty in Brazil today. I think really more of this protest is an outgrowth of economic growth rather than poverty in, in, in a sort of uh, counterintuitive way. Mm. There's a new generation which is feeling more empowered to protest for things that, by all rights, should probably be theirs, access to good public transportation. And we also have a new generation of students. This generation of students that started this protest is the first generation we've had that has no memories of the dictatorship. They grew up expecting that they should be able to demand things without being repressed brutally, as would have been the case 25 years ago. And they're hoping that they'll be able to to do that in the future. And uh, what do you think? I mean, was the police response with this tear gas and rubber bullets, was it justified? Um, No. Um, By all accounts, including my personal account and and lots of of what's being passed around, the Internet videos of them uh, pepper spraying journalists that were uh, trying to get away, people being attacked that weren't even in the protest. There's very few people that think there weren't some abuses, at least. Um, The mayor said that the night was marked by police violence and the state is opening an investigation into some abuses. So no one's claiming that everything went well. I mean, more crucially, these demos could have bigger impact internationally. I'm just wondering how, how they'll play for Brazil as it preps for the World Cup next year. Well, certainly all eyes are on Brazil over the next 12 months. Uh, on Sunday, we have the opening of the Confederations Cup, which is seen as a test run of the World Cup that will happen uh, in summer 2014, summer in the Northern Hemisphere, winter down here. Mm. And this, this is, doesn't look good. Um, there's another protest planned for Monday. And if the poll that came out yesterday said that most people supported the protest, even before last night, before this, this evidence of what seems to be police abuse, there's every likelihood that Monday could be another big scene, which is not the kind of scene that the Brazil may be wanting to project to the world at the moment. Vincent Bevins with the L.A. Times. He's speaking with us from Sao Paulo. Thanks very much. 
Thank you very much. Just ahead on the program, more protests. Another time zone. We have the view from Gezi Park in Turkey. You're listening to The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Turkey, it's decision time for the protesters hunkered down in a tent city in Istanbul's Gezi Park. Should they stay or should they go? Well, after talks with the demonstrators, Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan is urging them to go home, promising to suspend redevelopment plans for the park until a court decides whether those plans are legal. Zeynep Tufekci, a fellow at Princeton University, has just spent several days in Gezi Park. We spoke with her as her plane was on the runway, ready to depart from Istanbul. Tufekci says the Turkish protesters think they've made some progress. They feel like they made themselves heard. What I've been hearing, I have interviewed more than 100 people, and what I've been hearing constantly is that this government does not listen to us. They keep saying that there's a climate of fear, and in fact, if you are following, the protests have been taking part in dozens and dozens of cities, and while I was in Istanbul, around 9 p.m. every night in lots of neighborhoods, the pots and pans would start banging and people would start honking their horns. You must have a much clearer idea of how social media has played a role in these protests now. It's played a key role. Everybody said without the Internet, we couldn't have done it. You know, no news media was covering this. This was the main square in the middle of Turkey's biggest city, and this major event was not being covered. But people went to Twitter. People went to Facebook. People started calling each other, and thousands of people just showed up. People who had never thought about clashing with the police or anything were clashing with the police. Is that peace and love vibe still in the air? It is part carnival, part protest. There's this, um, you know, you get tear gas and people run out. And then it's just people have gotten so used to it. They're joking. They're addicted to tear gas because it's awful stuff. But it doesn't kill you and you feel like you're going to die, but you don't. And after the third or fourth time, you're like, okay, I feel horrible, but it's going to be okay. Where do you think the unprecedented energy that was built up from these protests is, is ultimately leading? I'm not sure where it's leading, but it is very strong among the young people. I mean, I saw amazing groupings. There's every political stripe. There are all sorts of groups that you just wouldn't have imagined coming together in Gezi Park next to each other. The soccer fans, who are very popular, uh, are right next to gay, lesbian, transgender activists. It's just this amazing, crazy space where lots of groups we never would have thought are coming together uh, I've seen people waving Turkish flags right next to a bunch of Kurds singing in Kurdish and knowing that they disagree. It's not like everybody agrees on everything, but there seems to be this strong unity that they feel like the government is not listening to them. Zeynep Tufekci at Princeton University Center for Information Technology. She's on a plane waiting for takeoff from Istanbul. Zeynep, safe travels and thanks for all the updates from Istanbul and Gezi Thank Park. Thank you. Bye-bye. The protests in Gezi Park and in Taksim Square next to it have left a linguistic mark in both Turkish and English. Our final story today explores some of the words, chants, and rewritten song lyrics that have made Turkey's protesters seem a really inventive bunch. Here's reporter Dalia Mortada in Istanbul. When Prime Minister Erdogan called the protesters chapuljular, he wasn't paying them a compliment. The term translates roughly to looters, marauders, or bums. Community organizer Ezgi Bakçay is in no doubt Çapulcular was intended as an insult. But protesters threw back the term, much like they threw back the tear gas canisters at cops, she says. People were protesting for different reasons, but they came together under this term. 
To make sure people around the world knew how to use it, one protester made a tutorial video. I chapel every day. I chapel every day. He chapels every day. Turks have now been using the English ing form, chapeling. It means a resistance to force or to demand one's rights. Some protesters wear t-shirts with chapeler scribbled across them. Others label their tents at Gezi Park things like number one, Chapel Street. And with this word, it seems like a wave of creativity and humor was unleashed amongst the protesters. A choir from the Bosphorus University took a traditional Turkish song and outfitted it with some new lyrics. They sing of gas masks and protests. They sing that the tear gas is sweeter than honey. Community activist Ezgi says protesters used irony at every chance they got. Ezgi says a group of women came out with a slogan. It thanked the prime minister for the pressurized water from the water cannons, saying it was good for their cellulite. In Taksim Square, guys chanted, Let's see you use that pepper spray. Take off your helmets and drop your batons and let's see who's the real man. Meanwhile, feminists warned Erdogan to run away because the women are coming. Not everyone could make it out to the street to have their say, so they did so from home. Every night at 9 p.m. for the past two weeks, Neighborhoods throughout Istanbul have erupted with the clanking of wooden spoons against pots and pans, silverware against plates. It's not the first time pots and pans have been used to express discontent in Turkey or abroad. But this time, the sound has inspired musicians. Kardesh Turkular, or Songs of Fraternity, are a well-known ensemble. This song they just released has become a sort of anthem for the protests. Enough with the headstrong decrees and commands, they sing. We're really fed up. Many of the protesters say they want to hang on to the spirit of humor and creativity, especially now that their argument with the government seems to be entering a more difficult phase. For the world, I'm Dalia Mortada in Istanbul.
can see a video of this song at theworld.org. Pretty darn cool. Million and a half hits for music on found objects. And while you're there, check out our language podcast, The World in Words. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.